Thank you very much, Scott. Uh, my name is Peter Hine. I'm the president, Sons of the Revolution in the State of New York. Uh, welcome to our Constitution Week meeting. It's delighted to see all of you here. The United States Constitution was signed on September 17, 1787. It's a momentous event that we celebrate this week. Uh, we're gonna start with the invocation and Ambrose Richardson, our past president, will present that. Let us pray. Great maker of the universe, who has provided us with manifold blessings, which we enjoy tonight, including our society, these historic buildings and our activities. Please bless us in our activities tonight. Guide us with your wisdom in furtherance of the ideals and goals of this society and this nation. Amen. Now we will conduct the Pledge of Allegiance and I'm gonna ask Scott Jeffrey, our registrar, to lead us in the pledge. Scott? I guess right up here. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you, Scott. Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York was formed in 1883 by grandchildren of those who through military or civil service achieved American independence during the Revolutionary War. We seek to perpetuate the memory of those patriots. Just a very brief word on upcoming events. This Friday, September 22, we will commemorate Nathan Hale on his the date of his uh, hanging uh, in 1776. So Friday, September 22nd at City Hall Park at noon, you're all invited to join us. Then on Friday, October 13th, we will have a reception, an optional dinner with a program featuring two special guests that tie in to uh, two of our exhibits. Actress and former member of the Canadian Parliament, Lenore Zahn, and also curator of our special exhibit, Cloak Crusader, George Washington in Comics and Popular Culture, Renee Witterstetter, uh, who will also be signing copies of her new book. Our evacuation day dinner will be Monday, November 20th. We'll reenact the 13 toasts given on evacuation day, November 25, 1783. Our Talmage Day stated meeting will be Monday, January 22 and our annual George Washington birthday ball will be Friday, September, excuse me, Friday evening, February 23 at the Metropolitan Club. I'd like to introduce the officers and board members of Sons of the Revolution who are here tonight. Uh, Peter Sherwin, our first vice president. Owen Cloder, our secretary. Alan Borst, our treasurer and Alan also previously served as chairman of the City Bar Legal History Committee and is responsible for connecting us with Justice Dillon. So Alan, thank you for that. 
Uh, our second vice president, Ken Chase. Uh, our registrar, uh, Scott Jeffrey, who you just met and did the pledge. I'd also like to recognize past presidents, Bob McKay and Ambrose Richardson, uh, both of whom continue to play active roles in our society. Bob has shown great leadership in his generosity to our society, including our 250th anniversary campaign. Ambrose also serves as the secretary of the National General Society, Sons of the Revolution. Uh, other board members present here tonight include Ted Andrews, Tom Lofton, incoming board member Rob Donaldson, and Alex Pappas, I believe I also saw. I'd also like to recognize members of the Long Room Plan Giving Society who are here tonight. Bob McKay, who I just introduced, Ken Chase, who also served on our as chairman of our book award committee for many years, and Scott Jeffrey, our registrar. And if anyone's interested in participating in the Long Room Association, please let me know. We're also pleased tonight to have a number of friends from other societies present, including representatives of five chapters of the Daughters of the American Revolution, who have joined us to co-sponsor this event tonight. So in addition to those present here, we have a very large number who are participating virtually, and uh, we welcome all of you. I'd like to uh, identify in particular Sharon Williams, Regent of the Mary Washington Colonial Chapter, Sarah Lynch, Regent of the Manhattan uh, Chapter, Melinda Allison, Vice Regent and Registrar of the Fort Greene Chapter, and again, acknowledge the many members who are participating virtually. We also are co-sponsored by the Brooklyn Chapter and Peter Minuet Chapter of the DAR. Two other introductions, Lorraine Bell, who is the chieftain of the New York Caledonia Society and a prior regent of the Knickerbocker chapter. And as I mentioned, uh, Justice Dillon is a member of the City Bar Legal History Committee. Uh, I've recognized Alan Boris, the past uh, chairman of that committee. Also the secretary of that committee is here, Jacob uh, Petrchak. So Jacob, thank you for joining us. and. Thank you to the members of the Legal History Committee who are joining us here in person or virtually uh, by a webcast. Uh, this event uh, represents a lot of work in particular by Scott Dwyer, our executive director, who started us off tonight, and Shelby Carr, our membership manager. It's now my pleasure to introduce Justice Mark Dillon, Justice Dillon is the author of First Chief Justice, John Jay and the Struggle for a New Nation. He will speak tonight on the topic, John Jay and the United States Constitution. Might add that John Jay is a particularly appropriate topic for a talk at Francis Tavern. Uh, John Jay was born not, five, not far from 54 Pearl Street. He was part of a social club that met here at Francis Tavern. Uh, he also had his office here in his role as the first secretary of foreign affairs. And downstairs, you will see the office of the Department of Foreign Affairs that we've set up as a permanent exhibit to show how the office worked 
uh, back in the late 1780s when the United States government was based here in New York City. So uh, the ghost of John Jay may be with us this evening in this room. Um, uh, justice Dillon has served as a justice of the New York Supreme Court since the year 2000. In 2005, he was appointed to the Appellate Division, Second Department, where he continues to serve. He's also an adjunct professor at Fordham School of Law and writes on many, many legal topics as well as historical topics witness the book tonight. So please welcome Justice Dillon. This is on. Hello, everybody. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about John Jay tonight. He is the New York founding father that does not have a toe-tapping Broadway musical named after him. <laughs> Yes. But uh, yeah, I, I was going to suggest that Peter, maybe you would like to do a screenplay that uh, have some Francis Tavern scenes in it. Uh, show of hands, just for my curiosity, uh, how many folks here are, are attorneys? It's about half the room. And, and how many? How many folks here had the common sense not to get a law degree? All right. Uh, and and hello also to anyone that is uh, watching remotely tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about John Jay. I'm going to try to focus the remarks not so much on his time as chief judge of the United States Supreme Court and instead talk a little more broadly about his upbringing, his life, his lawyer's connections to New York. And, and you will see that there are a number of times that he seems to always circle back to, to Manhattan and in fact this, this part of Manhattan and this very building. And we'll leave uh, 10 minutes or so at the end for any Q&A that, uh, that there might be here. So Jay um, was born at, it was at 66 Pearl Street. Uh, I was looking for the building and I couldn't find one with that particular number, but maybe I missed it. But it's, it had to, has to be within the block here. And uh, that was on December 12th of 1745. He didn't spend very much time as a child in Manhattan because his father was a merchant and wished to relocate to Westchester County. So the family moved up to Rye, New York, with a view of uh, the Long Island Sound, with Long Island on the other side of the water. Uh, he uh, was born into a, a privileged family. Uh, on his mother's side, there were some Phillipses up in Putnam County nowadays. There's a town of Phillipstown. Uh, he was also related to Van Cortlands. And we know in Northern Westchester, there is a town of Cortland. His father was a very successful merchant, as I had mentioned. He, he traded mostly with, with Britain and with Ireland. Jay was the eighth child out of 10. Two of his siblings died within a week of their births. One died when the child was three years old. One was mentally disabled. One was emotionally disabled. There were three children, including Jay, who made it into adulthood uh, and and had uh, normal productive lives. The family was Episcopalian. Jay was raised with uh, a great religiosity that was bestowed upon him. The family owned slaves up in Rye. They had 400 acres of property. And in those days, of course, if you had that type of land, you would you would cultivate it. And it's one of those ironies that you see with many of the founders where they were opposed to slavery, as, as you know, Jay was, but at the same time, his father and then later himself 
was an owner of slaves. Fortunately, this wasn't slavery in the sense of, of metal collars and whips. Uh, they, there's uh, correspondences and other evidence that they considered the slaves on their property to be as family, and they were, they were called members of the family and to, to an extent treated that way. When Jay's father retired and they moved to Westchester, the, the father, Peter, was owed 4,000 British pounds. And there's different ways you can compute how much that's really worth in today's dollars. But, but roughly, we're talking about maybe $1.1 million. And not all of that money was easy to collect right away. And so Peter found himself in the colonial courts. And Jay was watching this as a child and, and seeing how the courts were available, particularly for debtors. Um, for creditors to get paid by their debtors. So I have uh, some photos that we're going to look at from time to time as we go forward. Now it's not working, Scott. This the photo that's coming up is the one that is the uh, a drawing of the Jay Homestead in Rye, New York. That building is no longer in existence. It was uh, raised in 1838. The family continued to own it. Today, there is a uh, classic uh, two-story Greek revival residence with white paint and white columns uh, on that, uh, that property. And we also have uh, a photo of Peter Jay, which is uh, John Jay's father. Jay was homeschooled at first. He then went off to boarding school to, uh, to a school that was located in New Rochelle, not far from Rye, and then eventually to King's College, which we know is now known as uh, Columbia University. He graduated in 1764. He did wish to be an attorney. The year that he graduated, fortunately, was the same year that the bar, which had been closed to new attorneys, reopened itself up to new attorneys. And in those days, to become an attorney, you uh, would intern or clerk for an established attorney. And Jay was very fortunate through his family connections to be set up in a law practice of a gentleman named Benjamin Kassam, who was a very well-connected lawyer with a very uh, good and well-paying clientele. One of the cases that uh, Kassam had during Jay's internship and clerkship was a case called Forsey versus Cunningham where Cunningham was uh, apparently, uh, he stabbed very, very seriously Forsey. This was not a criminal case. This was a civil case where Forsey was seeking monies from Cunningham. It went to a jury and Jay had some involvement with, uh, with that trial. But what was interesting about the case was that after, after Forsey lost, he wanted to appeal the judgment. And instead of there being an appellate court system, there was a colonial governor named Cadillatter Colden. And Colden was very eager to see if he could obtain control over the colonial judiciary uh, through the appellate authority and otherwise. The people uh, were very opposed to that. The folks in New York City didn't like that at all. Uh, having juries determine matters was very, very important to them. And as a result of public outcry, the governor backed down. And this was another example in, in Jay's life of where he saw that protest, peaceful protest, can have an effect on, on policy. This is all getting to the point where later in life he's a diplomat, and we'll get, we'll get back to that. The Stamp Act 
went into effect during Jay's clerkship with Benjamin Kassam. It was supposed to go into effect on November 1st of 1765. It was an internal tax to the colonies. The colonists didn't like it one bit. And there, there was some violence over it, not just in New York, but also up in Boston and elsewhere. Uh, Governor Colden's coach one day was seized and destroyed and the wood was burned at Bowling Green. The courts closed and without the properly stamped paper, the law office is closed as well. And there was about a six month period when John Jay's clerkship came to a grinding halt. So what did he do? He just continued studying law on his own using the materials that were at Kassam's law office. Stamp Act was ultimately repealed in March of 1766. The courts reopened. There was now a backlog of work that lawyers had and that courts had to, to adjudicate. One of the first cases after the courts reopened were um, against individuals involved in what were called the Dutchess County rent riots. The Phillips family, which I mentioned before, owned large tracts of land or at least claimed large tracts of land in Dutchess County that had been occupied by the Wappinger Indians. And that matter had gone to court a few years earlier. The Phillipses won, the Wappingers lost. And it was right around this time um, after the Stamp Act, when the Phillips family raised the rents on the tenant farmers that were cultivating the land. And in many cases, the rents were increased so much that the farmers couldn't even pay the rent, much less have anything left over for themselves. And that's what uh, prompted uh, riots. So the New York governor sent troops from Manhattan up to Dutchess County to put down the rioting. There were shots fired. There were people killed on both sides. There were arrests made. Kassam was defending a number of the individuals that were charged with what they called constructive murder. You didn't have to shoot at and kill a colonial soldier, a British soldier. All you had to do was be present and you could be convicted of that murder that way as well. The leader of the rent riots was a gentleman by the name of William Prendergast. He had 10 children and he was found guilty by a jury to be in jury in those days. You had to be property owners. You had to have a certain amount of property. You had to be male. And uh, the trials were probably a foregone, foregone conclusion before they even began. He was found guilty of constructive murder. And a judge Horsman, who presided over the matter, sentenced him to be drawn and quartered and for extra good measure, beheaded. His wife didn't like that sentence. And she got on a horse and she rode um, a wild ride down to Manhattan to find the governor who was, it was late at night. He hadn't gone to bed quite yet, but he was in his pajamas. And she did get a piece of paper signed from him staying the, the death sentence. Uh, she had to get, get it up to the Poughkeepsie area though in time. And she managed to do that. Ultimately, there was an application made to pardon some of these individuals, including Pendergrast, and King George III pardoned him. And this was another observation that John Jay was able to have during his clerkship as a, a future attorney, the, the mercy of the British crown and the ability to make these applications and, and to work things out. So Jay completes his clerkship. There was no bar exam. 
Benjamin Kassam, his boss, simply uh, vouched for Jay to all of the members of the, the New York bar. And he was a member. He had to sign a document. He had to take an oath. And he was a member. And he started a law practice with Robert Livingston. He had gone to college at King's College with Robert Livingston. Livingston was part of the famous Livingston family in New York and New Jersey. Partnerships for lawyers was very unusual back in those days, but they thought that with their family connections, the, the, their law firm could be greater than the sum of the individual parts. And their first law office was in the judge's chambers of Livingston's father, Robert Livingston Sr. So I, I, I don't know how other lawyers would have felt if they had matters against Jay or Livingston and, and their law offices was in the, inside the courthouse. Uh, they handled uh, evictions, contract matters, assault, defamation, wage cases. It, it was a combination of Jay, his, his upbringing, his wealth, his education over here, and the pedestrian types of disputes that were handled in courts over there. And, and Jay was able to merge those two things. And he must have had the type of personality where, where he was comfortable with everybody and everybody was comfortable with him. He did get one very good client uh, through connections. There was a border dispute between New York and New Jersey. New Jersey claimed parts of what we now call Rockland and Orange County. And New York claimed parts of northern New Jersey. And would the two states go to war? Well, they backed, backed off from that. And they, and they set up, with the help of what was called the British Privy Council, a border commission. And the very notable people were on this commission. And they looked at the Dutch land grants. And they looked at the maps. And they took testimony. And they, and they worked it out. John Jay had been hired to be the recording secretary of this boundary commission. And to show what a stickler of detail uh, he was, there came a time when um, the state wanted to have a copy of the minutes and Jay refused to give them over because he didn't have orders from the Privy Council overseas to allow him to do that. In his law career and then later as a judge, detail was something that you see this theme with him over and over and over. So his worldview by the time he became an attorney was formed by having seen the debt collection efforts of his father, Governor Colden's efforts to get some control over the state judiciary, which the people opposed, the mercy of King George in pardoning William Pendergrast from death, the British backing down on the Stamp Act, Boundary Commission, working out the border between the two states. And it impressed upon him the understanding that if there are issues out there, that working it out, sitting down, reasoning with one another, being a diplomat, that that, that can help resolve these problems. At that point in his life, he was not a rabble rouser. He was not for revolution. He thought that if there were any problems that the colonies were having with Britain, that all you had to do is, is work them out short of a war for independence. Also early in his legal career, he joined uh, an organization called the Moot, which is similar to what a bar association is now. 
Uh, it was mentioned by uh, Peter that he belonged to uh, a social club that met right here in Francis Tavern. Also, they met at Kipps Bay, a little east of the Flatiron area of Manhattan. And he managed a social, uh, a social dance club. He became the most successful lawyer in the colony of New York by 1774. He had cases in Queens County, in Manhattan, in Westchester, and in Dutchess County. He never really got to the other side of the Hudson River, probably because of the, there was no George, George Washington Bridge yet. So it might've been a little difficult to get to the other side of that water. Uh, I didn't mention Putnam County. He didn't have cases in Putnam because Putnam didn't become a county until 1812. So what we now know is Putnam County, part of it was Westchester and part of it was, was Dutchess County. And when we talk about New York City, New York City that we know it today with the five boroughs, it, it didn't consolidate until 1898. So when we talk about New York City back in Jay's time, we're really talking about Manhattan, New York County. Jay's practice became so large and so successful that um, he was able to shed the Dutchess County cases that were most inconvenient to him. He split up his partnership with Livingston or maybe Livingston split up with him, but Jay being so successful, I don't imagine why Livingston would split up with him. And Jay gave Livingston the Dutchess County cases and Jay kept everything else that was closer to home. He was living in Manhattan at the time. His law office was in Manhattan. He rode a horse to work six miles. We don't know exactly where he was living in Manhattan at that time, but it was a six mile horse ride to and from work every day. We have another photograph here. This is a copy of the master's degree that John Jay obtained early in his time as an attorney in the New York colony also from King County. This is a copy of the law license that he received when he became an attorney. You'll note that there's a rope around the license. This is the uh, photo of the original. A lot of the J materials are repositoried at the Butler Library at Columbia University on the Upper West Side. Um, the theory is that the rope was used so that you could hang the law license on the wall the way people hang diplomas today. Uh, they didn't have command hooks, I guess. Um, so that was uh, that was what they could do. And then uh, we have a photo of, you'll recognize this place. Uh, this is the photo by, uh, well, it's a photo of a drawing by Samuel Hollier. It is supposed to represent Bronson's Tavern as it appeared in 1777, although the drawing wasn't made until something like 50 years after that. Jay married Sarah Livingston, there's that Livingston name again, in 1774, prominent New York family. Her father was William Livingston, who became the governor of New Jersey and served in that capacity from 1776 to 1790. They honeymooned by going to the Hudson Valley. They returned home to some news, something called the Boston Tea Party. So a number of individuals in response to the Tea Party decided that New York should send a letter in support of the Tea Partiers. And they put together a committee of individuals who would sign that letter. John Jay, being a prominent lawyer, was asked if he would be involved in the drafting and, and the signing of that letter, and he agreed. Up to that point in Jay's life, he really didn't 
exhibit any outward interest in politics. And he didn't realize it then, I imagine. But once he joined this committee, he got sucked into politics and he wasn't going to get out for decades in his future. The first Continental Congress met in Philadelphia in September of 1774. And he was asked as a result of the connections that he had, including this committee that I just mentioned, to go down to the first Continental Congress. He went with his father-in-law, William Livingston. He was 28 years old. He was the second youngest member of the Continental Congress. And there he rubbed elbows with some of the most prominent political leaders on the American uh, seaboard. In 1776, Jay and Governor Morris and Robert Livingston were appointed to an intelligence organization. Now the Revolutionary War was getting underway and there was a need for intelligence information that would, would assist us the American colonists from um, uh, whatever the British were up to and, and to uh, help them work against the British. Part of the activities that Jay did was uncovering a plot that was to kill General Washington. There was a mayor of New York City at the time named Dave Matthews uh, who was involved in this plot. He was a loyalist not to be confused with the Dave Matthews band that's yeah. out now. And there was a uh, army recruit, um, Thomas Hickey, who was also part of this plot. The idea was to get people close to Washington's inner circle in order to commit the crime, uh, but the plot was uncovered. The mayor was imprisoned in Litchfield, Connecticut, the uh, soldier Hickey was court-martialed and uh, two days later was executed for his role. So you have this connection now between John Jay and George Washington, where Washington may very well owe John Jay big time. Jay moved with his family to Fishkill up in Dutchess County. That was a hub of Northwest, North and South and East-West roads and commerce to the Hudson River that would be sailed down, down the river to, to New York. And there he cultivated a very effective spy by the name of Anik Crosby. Crosby was uh, a genius at being able to infiltrate whatever loyalists were up to and bring the information back to, to the colonials. He was so famous at the time that in 1824, and we're talking now 50 or so years later, James Fenimore Cooper wrote a book called The Spy, and it was based on Inna Crosby's. Uh, and, and Jay was still alive when this book was written, writ being written, and there was some consultation by Cooper with John Jay about what spy activities were like in the Hudson Valley in those days. We have a, that's uh, Sally, Jay, Livingston Jay, John Jay's wife. And that's Enoch Crosby, the inspiration for the book, The Spy. Jay was asked to get involved in the drafting of the first New York State Constitution, which was ratified in 1777. But not only did he get involved, he was in fact the principal drafter of the darn thing. And after the Constitution was ratified in Poughkeepsie, he was 31 years old. You had to fill the state offices that the Constitution called for. There was some talk about 
making him governor. He didn't really want to be governor. There was talk about making him chief judge, the first chief judge of the state of New York, and that one hit. So, so he, he was sworn in as the first chief judge of the state of New York, and he served in that capacity in roughly for roughly a year and a half. This is a photograph of the appointment document that was generated officially making him chief judge of the state of New York. It's also up at the Butler Library of Columbia, Columbia University. The court was sometimes on the run, such as when they sat in Kingston, they would hear the British were coming and they would have to pack up and they'd have to, to skedaddle uh, because the British had a tendency to come in wherever they thought the state government was and, and burn the buildings down to the ground. A uh, year and a half or so after he was chief judge, there was a, a controversy that was occurring in the northeastern part of New York State, a little north of uh, Massachusetts, a little west of New Hampshire. People up there wanted to create their own state. They originally had the idea of calling it the Republic of Connecticut, but that was a little confusing because you already had the state of Connecticut elsewhere. So they changed the name to what they wanted their state to be, to Vermont, and uh, it, it was a dicey situation, apparently, enough that uh, New York wanted to send a delegation to now the Second Continental Congress to have the Second Continental Congress work out the issues between New York, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and these rabble-rousers up in Vermont. They needed to have somebody go down there to represent New York's interests, and who did they choose to? Jay was a guy who people would always seem to go to when they needed something. They would say, would you go down to Philadelphia and try to work something out with the Continental Congress over Vermont? So he did. He goes down to Philadelphia. He arrives on December 8, 1778. And on December 9th, 1778, the president of the Continental Congress, Henry Lorenz, resigns as president of that organization, they need a new president for the Continental Congress. And there's John Jay. And by a vote of eight states to four, the second day there, he finds himself president of the Second Continental Congress, the highest executive office that there is under the, under the uh, system that was in effect at the time. And he continued there to rub elbows again with some of the most illustrious people, political leaders, of the states. They didn't work out the problem with Vermont, incidentally, uh, the Continental Congress. He spent a year as president of the Continental Congress. And for political reasons having to do with the war, it was very necessary that we get more help from Spain. And they needed somebody to go to Spain, somebody that we could have a treaty with, somebody that we could have a trade treaty with, somebody that would recognize the independence of the states and give us some money. Who did they ask? John Jay. So Jay gets on a boat with his wife. They have one son by that point. They leave him with the grandparents and they sail for Spain. Jay spends three years in Spain. The Spanish wouldn't recognize the states because Spain had their own colonies and they didn't want to set the precedent of, of colonies declaring their independence. And the Spanish weren't interested in the trade treaties either. And they did give some money, but not money that would help with the war. It was money that was so minor, it didn't even cover Jay's expenses during the three years that Jay was there. Meanwhile, the Revolutionary War was waging, leading up to 
the Cornwallis surrender at Yorktown, Virginia. And initially, people here didn't know whether that was going to result in a negotiated settlement now and an end to the war, or whether the Brits would double down, send even more troops to the United States and try to, to, to beat the states into submission. Well, as we know, the Brits decided, let's negotiate. So we needed negotiators. And as I've mentioned before, and as we'll see again, if you need somebody to do something and get it done, John Jay is somebody that people turn to. And they asked John Jay to go from Spain to Paris, where he was to be joined by John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Henry, Henry Lorenz, who used to be the president of the Second Continental Congress. Lorenz didn't really get there on time. He was captured on the Atlantic by the British and he was imprisoned in the Tower of London. And the last member of that group was William Temple Franklin, who wasn't a negotiator, but he was a relative of Ben Franklin and he was there to act as the group's secretary. It was quite a dynamic. John Adams was not a diplomat. Oil and vinegar, John Adams and diplomacy. Franklin missed a lot of the negotiating early on because of health issues, gout and otherwise. And he had a lot of sage quotes and wisdom but the guy who ran up the middle with the lawyerly negotiating among these three individuals was, was John Jay. The treaty turned out to be very, very favorable to the United States. It wasn't perfect, but it was more than what people in the, in the States were expecting the result to be. So when Jay came home and Franklin and Adams, these guys were rock stars. I mean, if there was a public opinion poll like we do today that could have been taken of these three individuals, you know, their, their favorables would have been through the roof, their negatives would have been zero. Everybody knew who they were. Nowadays, if you talk about the leading founding fathers, you know, Jay isn't necessarily named in that top tier, but he was top tier back in the day. The treaty was meticulously negotiated. And one provision that's worth mentioning is a provision that Jay insisted be put in where each side's creditors could sue debtors in the courts of the other nation. Again, tapping into the experiences that he had as a child, observing his own father going to the courts for debt collection. So we have a photograph of the negotiators of the Treaty of Paris. It was signed in 1783. Jay, of course, is the gentleman, I don't know if the uh, full screen is visible to the uh, folks that are watching remotely, but Jay is the gentleman standing on the left. You got John Adams to his right, Benjamin Franklin. To the far end beyond Franklin is William Temple Franklin. And the gentleman standing in the back is Henry, Henry Lorenz. Lorenz had been released from prison by the British and arrived the day before the treaty was signed. And the joke is that his only contribution to the treaty was to stand there for the sake of that uh, drawing. The drawing was by Benjamin West. You'll notice on the right side, and here I do believe we're off camera to those that are watching remotely. Uh, the right side is a blank area. And that is because the two negotiators for the British, Richard Oswald, and Henry Strachey 
the theory is that they chose not to show up because they didn't want their faces to be in this photo, in this drawing for posterity as the losers of the war for independence. Can you take a quick question? Quick question, yes. Uh, do you know the uh, prisoner who was exchanged for Henry Lorenz? I do not. It's Cornwallis. Okay. Thank you. I just learned that. <laughs> so Jay comes home from this very successful treaty, steps off the boat, expecting to return to the practice of law, his service to his state and the other states at an end. But unbeknownst to him, the Second Continental Congress appointed him to be the state's minister of foreign affairs under the Articles of Confederation. So he took the job. It paid $4,000 a year, which wasn't all that bad for the time. And during some of the time that he was uh, minister of foreign affairs, his office, that was when his office was in this building, Francis Tavern. And he served in the capacity as minister for foreign affairs for um, roughly six years from uh, 1783, 1789. He lived around here as well. Uh, so he was able to walk to work. It must've been a wonderful time for him after all of this travel, travel to Philadelphia, time in Spain, time in Paris. You know, now he's back in his home, New York and able to walk to work. The Articles of Confederation, as we know, didn't really work out as well as had been initially hoped, and a stronger continental arrangement needed to be um, created. And Jay was on board with that. He was a Federalist, and he and Hamilton and uh, Madison, um, one of the things that they did to move the ball along was to write the Federalist Papers. Jay wrote papers 2, 3, 4, 5, and 64. It means that he was the real go-getter at the beginning, but then he got sick and he was out of the ball game for a while. And that explains the gap between Federalist Paper 5 and Federalist Paper 64. But if you look at the Federalist Papers, the subject matter of them all tend to have in some way, shape or form um, international relations and foreign policy. So he was building upon that in the Federalist Papers. George Washington said, and I quote that the Federalist Papers, he said, quote, will merit the notice of posterity, close quote. And certainly he was right about that because we're still talking about them and sometimes quoting them to this day. He of, of course didn't practice law during the time that he was the minister in foreign affairs. The federal constitution was ratified and became effective on March 4th of 1789. Jay was very instrumental in urging New Yorkers through various other publications to support New York's ratification of the Constitution. And once that Constitution went into effect, just as was the case when the New York Constitution went into effect, there were jobs that needed to be filled. Washington, of course, was selected to be the president. You had to have room in the cabinet for Jefferson, for Hamilton, and for Jay. And Jay probably could have done what became known as Secretary of State, or he could have done Treasury perhaps, but Washington chose to um, 
place John Jay into the judiciary as the first chief judge of the United States Supreme Court. There was a certain logic to that selection. Jay, after all, did have some experience as having been chief judge in the state of New York. He certainly had proved his mettle as an attorney during the years when he was in private practice. Washington gave the high cabinet positions and the chief justiceship also and, and other Supreme Court spots to people who went out on a limb to uh, help ratification of the federal constitution and who was supportive of overall of the Revolutionary War. So Jay met that criteria as well. And there was one other thing that might have influenced Washington's thinking. Remember, Washington might not have been alive, but for the role that John Jay had, those are the types of ties that bind, you know? So, so Jay was very happy to, to go back to the law after having stepped out of it for so long with all the international affairs and foreign policy stuff that he had been doing. He was confirmed by the United States Senate unanimously. Now today, if we were to suggest that anybody from either political party would ever be confirmed unanimously, it's, it's just it's, that's not going to happen. Uh, it was amazing. And he is the youngest person to ever become chief judge of the United States. You know, all the ones that were appointed to that job later, none of them were, were as young as 44 years old. We have a photograph here of John Jay's oath that he signed by which he officially became the chief judge of the United States Supreme Court. Let me talk a little bit about the early federal court system. He had to build a judiciary from scratch. There was no predecessor on the federal level. There wasn't even any indigenous American law. They borrowed British common law when they could. And if there, were, if there was other laws that Congress might pass that would be different than British common law, then that law would control instead of British common law. But we had three levels of federal judiciary. Just like today, we had what were called district courts. They handled the least serious of the cases, the minor criminal offenses. Every state was a district. Every district had one judge, a district court judge. The second level of court going up the ladder is what were called the circuit courts. And we still have circuit courts today. There were three circuits. There was an, uh, an Eastern circuit, which was all of New England, plus the state of New York. There was the Southern circuit, which was North Carolina on South. And there was the middle circuit, which were all the states in between from Jersey down through and including Virginia. There were no circuit court judges per se. The circuits were to be comprised of three judge panels deciding cases. And those three judges, one was to be the district court judge sitting in the state where the circuit was sitting, and two were to be traveling US Supreme Court judges. The Supreme Court, now the highest federal court, was to consist of six judges, J as chief, plus five associate judges. You might think, well, why should the court why should an appellate court have an even number of people? Wouldn't you want an odd number of judges so that there'd be a tie-breaking vote? Well, the logic of the founders at that time was you put two U.S. Supreme Court judges on the road in each of the three circuits. That adds up to six judges. 
What do we need a seventh for? You might have picked up on the fact that there is another big flaw in how this process was arranged. If you were a district court judge and you rendered a decision that was to be appealed to a circuit court, that same judge who rendered that decision would be among the three judges on the district on the circuit court that would decide whether that judge was right or wrong. And if you were a Supreme Court judge sitting in the circuit courts and you rendered a decision in the circuit court and the party that feels aggrieved wanted to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court now, you were going to go to six judges of the United States Supreme Court and up to two of them have already ruled against you in the circuit court. Also, if the Supreme Court ever tied 3-3, that means that the lower court decision would stand. So in order to win at the Supreme Court, you needed at least four votes on your side. So if two circuit court judges who are also on the Supreme Court ruled against you at the circuit court, you needed to get the votes of all four of the other four Supreme Court judges, or you had to get one or two of the circuit court judges that already ruled against you to believe that they screwed up. So the odds mathematically were very much against anybody that had visions of wanting to appeal to the United States Supreme Court. And as, as somebody that's been involved in the law and in, in the appellate courts, I can imagine that there are probably a number of cases where lawyers would counsel their clients, don't bother going to the United States Supreme Court, you're not gonna win. And I wouldn't blame them for that type of advice. Being a US Supreme Court judge was a very punishing job. They sat, as Supreme Court judges, two months a year, February every year and August of every year. And the remainder of the year, they would be traveling the circuit courts, that phrase, riding the circuit. It was something that we borrowed from the British. But the, the, the mass territory of Britain wasn't anywhere near as large as, as what we had here in, in the United States. They had to travel most of the year. No automobiles, no planes, no trains horses, no paved roads, trails, dirt roads, inns, you'd have to stay at the inns during the course of your travel, no Marriott's and Hyatt's in those days, it would be hit or miss, a good inn or not a good inn. And the inns, you'd share rooms with total strangers, sometimes you'd share beds with total strangers, it'd be guys in one room, women in a different room. And the food, Sometimes it would be good at an inn. Sometimes it wouldn't be a good, good food at an inn. And I noticed that uh, up at the Butler Library, John Jay has, has a diary that's repository there. And he kept a diary during these years when he was doing all of this travel for the circuits. And one thing that he keeps coming back to in his diary was, oh, that was a good inn. Or I wouldn't go back to that inn. Or, or he would talk about the food. He was making notes for himself where not to go back to or where to go back to as he would continue to ride the circuits around the country. He ran, he rode the Southern circuit once and he did the Eastern circuit. Uh, he did the um, middle circuit, I should say, and, and the Eastern circuit once. They didn't get travel expenses from Congress. So any of the food and the inns and other travel expenses, it all came out of the judge's pocket. They were earning, he was earning 4,000 a year the other associate judges were getting 3500 a year but then you deduct all the cost of the travel 
during most of that year. And another thing that was interesting, I think, about judges traveling around the country was that when they would get to the location where court was to be held, there weren't law libraries. We didn't have courts staffed or, or stocked with law books. We didn't have the electronic Westlaw system and research engines that we have nowadays. There was no Zoom, there was no Teams. So what you had to do for resource material was bring your own law books with you as you would travel around the country. So you'd have your horse and you'd have a carriage behind you that would have those law books. I have another photo. I'm gonna show you, go the wrong way, there we go. Um, where if this is not on the screen, for those that are watching remotely, this is a photograph of one of two bookcases that John Jay owned and actually used at the time. It is currently at the Jay Homestead in Katona, New York. We'll talk a little bit about that toward the very end. And they're called lawyer bookcases. They have the glass front and they are compartments, one stacked on top of another. And I don't know if it shows up in this, in this screen, but um, the, the actual photograph and the actual furniture piece has handles on each side. And the design of this bookshelf is that if you had to travel with your law books, rather than taking the books out of all of the shelves, transporting the furniture, and then reassembling your books at the destination, what you could do is simply take each compartment, starting with the top, flip it onto its back so the glass front is facing upwards. And then you take the handles and you carry it to the carriage. You transport the whole thing to wherever you're going and then you do the reverse and you reassemble the bookcases without ever having to remove the books. Law offices and courts have this furniture piece to this very day without the handles because there's no need nowadays for the handle. Next photograph is John Jay's official photograph as US chief judge. They didn't have judicial regalia or robes at the initial time that John Jay was chief judge. Uh, this is a portrait by the famous Gilbert Stewart. And he felt that the majesty of the office, he was a very humble guy, but he thought the office required some type of regalia for this particular drawing. He had been awarded a um, honorary degree from Harvard College. And this was the regalia that he was given by Harvard for that ceremony, which he, he retained. And so he's, he's, he's there. Uh, the, the judges that have gone to the US Supreme Court over time who were from Harvard, you know, they take great pride in the fact that John Jay has this picture wearing Harvard regalia. State judgeships were actually more prestigious than federal judgeships at the time. They tended to pay a little more. You certainly didn't have to travel outside of your home state or your home county. And also the power balance was different. You know, we have the 10th amendment that the federal government only has the authority that's expressly given to it and everything else resides with the states. It wasn't until much later that that balance kind of changed and the federal government is now all seeing and all knowing, but, um, but there was more action for for state court judges, at least initially, in the, uh, in the court system overall. The very first session 
of the United States Supreme Court was held in Lower Manhattan at the Royal Exchange Building. Um, that was on February 1st, 1790. That's a photograph of a drawing of the Royal Exchange bu Building. The very first case that they had, not during the first session, but during a later session was called Van Strophorst versus Maryland. It's settled. The judges had no robes. They also did not adopt the tradition that the Brits had of wearing wigs. The Royal Exchange Building is no longer there, but it was on Broad Street near Water Street. So we could walk to, to where that was located. I think it was across the street. And the capital moved from New York to Philadelphia within the year. This is a photograph of the courtroom. This is a contemporary photograph that has been preserved of the courtroom at Old City Hall in Philadelphia, where most of the US Supreme Court sessions were held when they sat in Philadelphia. If you look at Independence Hall, majestic, large, brick colonial building, the building right next to that to the left is Old City Hall. It's a squarish building. It also has that red colonial brick, but that was the building where the Supreme Court sat. Jay was chief judge from 1789 to 1795. And during those years, the United States Supreme Court heard a total of 11 cases. Most of the year, as you know, was spent traveling the circuits and, and deciding cases at the circuit level. But of the 11 cases, there were three which involved such minor ministerial matters. They're, they really weren't worthy of much attention, which leaves you with eight cases. And of those eight cases, there was one case called Brailsford, which it came in, and then it came back a second time, and then it came back a third time. So you really had six cases, including Brailsford times three. So very briefly, um, the earliest cases of the United States Supreme Court were very significant because we were creating American law. There was a case, West versus Barnes, where Congress had a statute. And if you applied the statute the way it was written, there was an unjust result. The J court had to decide, do we go with the just result or do we do what Congress says in their legislation? This um, was something that troubled the judges very much, but in defining the separation of powers, they decided, listen, it's, it's the legislature that creates the laws, it's the judges that apply them. And that if a law is written in a way that doesn't make very good sense, then it's the legislator's job to go amend the law. And uh, so the appellant in the West versus Barnes case lost, despite the fact, I'm not going into too much detail, but despite the fact that there was great unfairness to the result. There was another case called Chisholm versus Georgia. The question was whether or not a state could be sued in the federal courts by a person who was a citizen of a different state. The intention of the, of the drafters of the Constitution was that the states could not be sued in federal court. This was a compromise and it was an agreement between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. But they never went back to the Committee of Detail and changed the language that had been drafted, 
which contains some language suggesting that that well, in fact, stating that the federal courts can hear, among other things, disputes quote between a state and citizens of another state. So, in this Georgia case with Chisholm, the question, the threshold question, was can Georgia be sued at all in this case in federal courts? The J Court decided that the plain language of the Constitution says that they can, despite the fact that it was contrary to what everyone knew the intention was of the founders. All judges back in those days were originalists. Some of them were the, the writers of these things. And so this shows the difference between two schools of originalism, one school being plain language textualism and one being intent of the founders. People at the Federalist Society probably love to debate which of these two schools is better, but the J Court had to, had to, to choose up here. We hadn't gotten to the later point in our history where the Constitution was looked at as being a living, breathing document uh, subject to, to broader interpretation. And the J Court went with, with textualism. It was so controversial. The states were so upset by the decision that they could be sued in federal courts that it uh, prompted an 11th Amendment to our Constitution to say otherwise. That's how controversial it was. And that, relatively speaking, that constitutional amendment um, was, uh, was uh, voted upon in Congress and ratified by the states with lightning speed. There was a case, Pagan versus Hooper, which stands for the proposition that if the executive branch of government wants the court to take a case and decide it a certain way, uh-uh-uh, that's a violation of the separation of powers, that the judiciary is not there to do the bidding of the executive. There was the Brailsford case that I mentioned that came back three times. It's the only case, the third time it was there, it's the only reported jury trial ever conducted at the United States Supreme Court. The question was whether or not a foreign treaty, in this case, the Treaty of Paris, which John Jay had helped write, was superior to a conflicting state law. Jay, of course, wanted to see this case go what he believed to be the correct way, uh, and the jury did come back with that result, that the treaties were the supreme law of the land. And finally, I'll mention uh, Glass versus Sloop Betsy. There was quite a problem on the high seas, particularly from the French. They were harassing vessels, particularly British vessels, seizing them, taking their cargo, privateering. Uh, it was part of a war tactic. It was legal. It wasn't piracy. It was privateering. And, and under the law of nations, you could do that against a belligerent country that you were at war with. Unfortunately, some American ships would sometimes be caught up in this and wrongly seized. So, so there were prize courts up and down the East Coast, which would determine whether or not a particular seizure was lawful. The Sloop Betsy case that John Jay uh, was a, a judge on established federal court admiralty jurisdiction that no foreign government like the French could be adjudicating disputes on American soil, that if you had a dispute on American soil, you had to bring it to the United States federal court. It was contrary to the law of nations. It was a surprise decision. It was a big deal in its day. But within the next generation or so, the world came around to the same point of view in their home countries. Jay left the Supreme Court. Actually, in 1794, he was still a US Supreme Court judge, uh, but he was asked by President Washington to go to London and negotiate what became the Jay Treaty. 
He was overseas for a little over a year, year and a half. He came back and he found that he had been elected governor of the state of New York in his absence. Another instance of people coming to him and saying, will you do this, as opposed to him trying to make something happen for himself. When he was elected governor, the public didn't know the terms of the Jay Treaty yet. And maybe he would have lost that election if they did, because the Jay Treaty turned out to be very, very unpopular. The terms in office were three years. He had two elected terms for a total of six years. During his terms in office, the, we just got through COVID, there were two yellow fever epidemics. The second one was the most serious. It killed one out of every 30 residents of New York City. He kept on the government employees that had been appointed by his predecessor, Governor George Clinton, even though the two governors were of different political parties. He created an office of controller in order to better manage state finances. And what I think is his most important contribution when he was governor is that after several tries, he was able to get through the state legislature a bill that gradually um, abolished slavery in the state of New York. An absolute abolition wasn't in the cards. It would never get through the state legislature, but the compromise was the gradual abolition of it. This was signed into law in 1799, which we'll note was decades before the Civil War, which brought that whole issue to a head. A couple more photos, we're just about wrapped up. Um, that's Government House, the building that's, um, the main building that's on the right. Um, it was located within walking distance of here. It was originally built by the state of New York to house George Washington when it was believed that the Capitol would remain in New York and that George Washington would need a quote, White House, close quote. But the Capitol moved to Philadelphia before too long. So the state, which had built this. Washington never lived there. It wasn't completed. Uh, but when it was completed, it became the governor's residence. So Clinton lived there for a while and Jay lived there for a while. During Jay's governorship, the capital of the state moved to Albany. So uh, about half the time he was governor, he was more tied to Albany. So he was back in lower Manhattan during those times when, uh, when he lived here. And finally, uh, I have uh, a photograph of the Jay Homestead. Now, this is the one up in northern Westchester in Katona. This was property that Jay bought when he was um, much later in life. He had inherited some of the acreage, and uh, he he upgraded the, the farmhouse on that property. He died there on the first floor or the left side of this building where there was a uh, a library that he used to work from. He had been asked by President Adams during the outgoing days of the Adams administration to come back and be U.S. chief judge a second time. Oliver Ellsworth was the chief judge at the end of the Adams administration, and he was retiring from the bench. And Jay um, had no interest in getting back on a horse and riding the circuits. So Jay turned down the opportunity to become U.S. chief judge for a second time as the Jefferson administration was coming in and um, lived a very quiet retirement. He stayed out of politics after that. The homestead here, this is where he spent the rest of his days, 
remained in the Jay family well into the 1900s. In 1946, it was offered this building and the property to the United Nations, which was looking for a place for a headquarters. So this is probably a perfect place to leave off because this is the week the traffic is terrible in Manhattan <laughs> because of what's going on at the UN. And that could be Northern Westchester's problem if they had chosen to put the UN up there. Um, we have time for some questions. Thank you, Councilman Stillen. Uh, for anybody uh, in-house, uh, if you'd like to uh, have a question answered, uh, please raise your hand. And if anybody online, uh, please put your uh, Q&A in the chat or in the Q&A uh, web panel, and uh, we'll be with you as soon as possible. Anybody in, in on site here? We're going to give you the first dibs. I just had a comment apropos of our exhibit here. You mentioned that Henry Lawrence um, hadn't made much of a contribution to the, the peace negotiations. In fact, he did uh, contribute the addition of the word and slaves to the list of things that the British were going to give back after the, the, uh, after the peace and the hostilities ended. Um, that particular phrase ended up with the Birch trials here because um, General Carlton took the position that it didn't apply to people who had become free as a result of responding to the British in treaties before the preliminary articles were signed in November of 1782. Um, it was a bit of a contention, but it's what our exhibit is all about. And, Good. You know, that's what Henry Lawrence managed to contribute. He had about 200 slaves himself. Yeah. So he had a particular interest in it, but he wasn't the only one. Yeah, I don't want to take anything away from him. It was a joke that he his only contribution was to stand for that drawing. Uh, one question uh, from online, uh, Robert Wong. I understand that the Americans had some oversight awareness of the post-war treaties between Britain and France and between England and Spain. Uh, did Jay do the oversight versus uh, the other treaty members? Um, when Jay went to Paris to negotiate the Treaty of Paris with his other colleagues. He was instructed by the government, our Continental Congress, that um, we were to closely consult with the French on every aspect of this negotiation and that the French would have every much a, a say in this and perhaps more so than our own negotiators would have. Jay was very offended by that instruction. And so what they did, recognizing how far away they were from Philadelphia, is they simply ignored it. And they negotiated the treaty on the terms that they felt were correct. When it became apparent that a treaty was reached and the French hadn't been as intimately involved in it as was expected, initially people uh, in, in Congress were angry at Jay and, and Franklin and Adams but they hadn't seen the treaty yet. Um, they were gonna they were gonna come back to the United States and have a talking to. But when the when the treaty got to the United States, uh, and we saw how favorable it was, all of those sins were forgiven. And and in his style, Ben Franklin um, said to everyone, "Well, all I have to do is go to the French representatives and tell them that the fact that they weren't intimately involved in this is just a a matter of bien science." So they smoothed it out. 
I believe there was a time when Jay was both the Secretary Minister of Foreign Affairs as well as the first Chief Justice. Uh, can you confirm that and just speak a little bit about when that was and yes. what uh, what happened there? The circumstances of it was that Jay became U.S. Chief Judge very quickly in the process of filling positions. He had been, as you know, the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Then he became Chief Judge. But Washington went to him because the, the his successor in foreign affairs hadn't been selected yet. Or confirm. Uh, it was going to go to Jefferson, but Jefferson didn't actually take the job until March of 1790. So there was about a, a five or four or five, six month period where um, probably more closer to five or six where uh, Jay wore two hats. He was the foreign minister for our country and he was chief judge of the United States Supreme Court. People didn't have much of a problem with that. And it wasn't the only time in history when you had two hats being worn early on. Other questions? Um, you said that Chisholm v. Georgia was decided on a textual basis, but is it not true that Jay also favored a strong federal government over states' rights and would he also be in favor of uh, the ruling that the court adopted on that, on that basis, not just because the text was captured? Very po possibly. The, the, the question is whether or not Jay liked the fact that they were ruling uh, that states were subject to federal courts. He may very well have. Uh, there's nothing that I'm aware of where he ever expressed any particular feeling about it. In fact, in the cases that he handled as a U.S. Supreme Court judge and as a circuit judge, his personal writings never really got into any details about any cases that were before the court. They were more personal things, as I had mentioned, what good inns were and where, where food was good. But uh, by all means, the result suited some Federalist interests very nicely. Yes? You had mentioned that Jay uh, was very well known in regard to Disney and way back men. Um, <laughs> My question is this, and I don't think you answered it, was why didn't Jay, why why didn't he arrive with John Adams and um can't think of the like Ben Franklin, Franklin. George Washington? Why is his name not as well known? I know it's well known in New York. Why isn't it as well known nationally? You're talking about today? Or you're talking about them? Yeah, I'm talking about today. As as you said, he was very well known. Well, I do have a theory about that. Putting Ben Franklin aside for a moment, Jay never held any kind of national office the way Washington did, Adams, Madison, Monroe, we go down the list. Um, and also, if you're chief judge of the United States Supreme Court and you decide, depending on our count, six cases, eight cases, maybe 11 cases, there's not all that much historically sexy about that. To lawyers and judges, there is, but in terms of general history, uh, I, you know, he, he, I don't think that he could compete in the long run with those who had national federal offices, legislators, or, or particularly executives. Another question. Uh, one more question. Okay. It's not a question; it's a, a bit of a theory on the same topic. Okay. And. 
I think that, you know, Washington was Washington, right? Franklin um, was a writer and, you know, had his own newspaper. Um, uh, Jefferson was doing pamphlets. Um, I think that, you know, at least in my family, we did these things in the day, that there was, it was not the custom uh, mm -hmm. social to be a selfish mother. I think that some people were just not against their beliefs to promote themselves mm -hmm. in the way that maybe some other people did. And it causes later generations to not have the kind of PR effect of these other campaigns. Oh, yeah. Um, that's a point well taken. John Adams probably is the one that comes to mind as being a, a very, very strong promoter of himself and his, his own ambitions. Jay was the complete opposite. He had no ambitions. He was asked to do things. He did them. And then he retired. Thank you, Justice things and then we're going to have the benediction and those who are joining us for dinner will join for dinner uh first scott for those who purchased books where are they i just realized i didn't have a book yet oh <laughs> that should have been given to you when you checked in but you came for the meeting so you haven't gotten it yet everybody else if you didn't pre-purchase a book uh, we have some soft cover books for you at the end of this summer. and and i trust uh, justice dylan you'll take a minute and, sure. and sign books for people which is great thank you very much for that uh secondly uh, i would like to present a certificate of appreciation to you and uh I'd like uh, Alan Bors, who uh, was the past chair of the City Legal History Committee and instrumental in arranging this program, to join me for the picture. Thank you. Thank you so much, my And then, um, I'd, I'd like to uh, call on uh, Ambrose to uh, give the benediction and we'll be done for the evening. Again, thank you for joining us and for the audience on the live stream. If you missed any part of this, uh, it has been recorded. We'll be distributing the recording. We also distribute the audio feed and our podcast feed. So you can look for the Francis Tavern Museum podcast feed on Apple Podcasts and other sources and uh, get the audio, uh, and, and I think the video ultimately gets up on YouTube. So uh, if you missed any part, you can uh, see the whole thing. Ambrose? To our creator, thank you for the occasion and the blessings of this evening, the fellowship, the camaraderie. May we go forth in peace and love and brotherhood and sisterhood in pursuit of the ideals of our society and our country. Thank you.